Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode two of Raw Talk Podcast, the podcast formerly known as Raw Data. On our very first episode featuring a guest, we are humbled to be joined by Dr. Molly Shoikit, a heavy hitter in Canadian polymer science who has adapted her expertise to study drug delivery and tissue regeneration. Dr. Shoikit's accomplishments are endless. She holds a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Tissue Engineering. She's a Professor of Chemical Engineering and Applied Chemistry and Biomaterials and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto. And in 2018, she was appointed the Chief Scientist of the Province of Ontario and inducted as an Officer of the Order of Canada, which is one of the country's highest distinctions. Given that this was one of the first ever episodes that we recorded with a guest, the imposter syndrome was definitely strong with this one. I remember trying to strike that natural balance between keeping a fluid conversation and making sure that we were asking all the questions that we planned on asking Dr. Shoikit. But of course, she's very well versed in science communication and did a great job in telling us about how she translated her passion for polymer chemistry and building new chemicals into a massive academic enterprise with huge implications for the drug development industry. In this episode, Melissa also does our very first Ask a Student segment and talks to Nick, a then-PhD candidate, about his experiences working with Dr. Shoikit. So here it is in its original form, Episode 2. Hey everybody, welcome to Episode 2 of the Raw Data Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. We continue our theme of scientific engagement, and on this episode, we have the honor of sitting down with the incredibly accomplished and influential Dr. Molly Shoikit. She holds the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Tissue Engineering and is University Professor of Chemical Engineering and Applied Chemistry, Chemistry, and Biomaterials and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Toronto. Wow, I told you she was accomplished. Now, Dr. Shoikit isn't your typical biomedical researcher. She comes from a background in polymer chemistry and worked in industry for years before returning to academia. This has allowed her to collaborate extensively and merge expertise from several fields. Today, her lab designs novel polymers that are used for drug delivery and regeneration. On top of that, she's working hard to engage the public about science through her multimedia campaign called Research to Reality. As her lab's motto suggests, she's dedicated to solving important problems together. This episode is a real treat. Take a listen. Dr. Shoikit, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's just really humbling to have you here with us. For someone to be so successful working at the interface between different fields, it's not an understatement to say that you've helped shape the field of drug delivery and polymer science. We'd love to know how it all started, so could you begin by talking a little bit about your personal background, where you grew up, and your early education? Uh, sure. So I grew up in Toronto, and uh, at a very early stage, um, I think my parents and I realized that uh, I was very stubborn and didn't always follow rules. Uh, and um, I think as a child and as for my parents, that was a little problematic, but it's been really important for me through my career to have that determination and that stubbornness and that really just that desire to succeed and kind of have a vision of what I want to do and, and go out and pursue it. Having said that, uh, you know, really um, went to a public um, elementary school. It was kind of like one of those open classrooms where if you were advanced in one class, you could be with the other class, you know, the year ahead. Uh, so that worked really well for me. Um, and then there were a lot of strikes one year and my parents said, you know what, maybe we should take you out of the public school system. Uh, and I ended up going to the Toronto French School. 
So that again was a, a great experience. I had uh, an amazing, uh, amazing math teacher and amazing chemistry teacher in high school. And I realized, you know, as much as I loved math, I wasn't going to be a mathematician, but I really loved chemistry. And uh, I ended up going to MIT for my undergraduate degree and pursuing a, a degree in chemistry, mostly because I liked it. And in one of my uh, advanced organic uh, chemistry labs, we made a polymer. And I just thought, wow, this is so cool. And uh, because the uh, chemistry program was pretty open, like I had a lot of electives that I could take. I ended up taking courses in chemical engineering, material science engineering, and just learning more about this field. When I graduated, I actually did apply to medical school, and I did apply to grad school, and realized even though I had those research experience, I didn't really know what a researcher would be or a scientist would be. So I was able to defer medical school, go to graduate school, um, and then, you know, at some point, actually in life, you have to make decisions. So, but, <laughs> you know, I like this idea of trying to keep as many doors open as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, you know, I just, it was something that I became very engaged in and loved. But my, my PhD is in a very applied field. It's a field called polymer science and engineering. And uh, that's a field that came out of industry. You know, like the first polymers were discovered in du at DuPont, or, you know, we had the rubber industry, the natural polymers. So that was a very applied field, but I was always interested in medicine. And so when I got my PhD, because it's a field where everybody went into industry, um, you know, because it came out of industry, almost all of my colleagues went into industry, and I did as well. But I was able to find a job in biotechnology uh, which really, you know, built on my interests in medicine and kind of helping people that way, but also my formal training in polymer science. How many years of study did it take for you to land your first job? Um, I completed my undergrad in 1987 and my PhD in 1992. So my first job was right after my PhD in industry in biotech, and that was an encapsulated cell therapy company. So. That company, what we were trying to do is take cells and transplant them in the body um, for applications of diabetes or Parkinson's disease. And so the idea is that the cells would be producing the insulin for diabetes, for example, or the dopamine in Parkinson's patients. Um, and the challenge there was to keep the cells alive. So a little bit different from what I'm doing now because those cells didn't have to actually integrate into the existing neural circuitry. They just had to stay alive and keep producing what they were supposed to do. Okay, so this was the industry experience that got you interested in central nervous system disorders. Absolutely, yeah. So I worked at this company, and it was a small company uh, based in Rhode Island. But even though it's Rhode, you know, Rhode Island's a really small state, so we always considered ourselves part of the sort of the greater Boston um, biotech sector. And at that company, uh, really, it was way ahead of its time because, uh, as you may know, cell therapy is still an area that we're trying to make real, make happen, turn into a reality. And uh, at that time, the company had a very academic flavor. So we were encouraged to publish. Everybody was quite young, either out of a postdoc or grad school. I mean, there were some more experienced people. But we worked really long hours like you do in grad school, and we're all very passionate about what we did. But that was really a um, fantastic opportunity because it was regenerative medicine. And we didn't call it regenerative medicine at that point, but that was really 
at the early stages of regenerative medicine. And, uh, you know, I came back to Toronto and came to the University of Toronto for the first time as, a, as an academic with this idea of combining what I had learned professionally in industry in regenerative medicine and my core background in polymer science and thinking, hey, how can I put these things together to do something really interesting? And that combination is something that your lab is now kind of grappling with. That's one of the major topics of your of your research. Yeah, it's funny, you know, like really this, um, what we did back then has really propelled my whole career, I think. Part of that is I was working with extremely bright, intelligent, creative biologists. But they would take whatever material was on the shelf and try and make it work. And I thought, well, wait a second. I just got a PhD in polymer science and engineering. I make things. Why not think about what we need those materials to do and design them to do those things instead of trying to take something off the shelf shelf and make it work. You know, it's that sort of, that analogy of a square peg going into a round hole. And so that has really been a guiding principle. Having said that, it's much harder than it sounds. It, like, it sounds so logical. Why wouldn't everybody do you that? Would, you would think that the, the synthetic chemists that are making the drug will also be doing this, uh, the delivery part, packaging, but I didn't realize it was an entirely separate expertise and yeah so it, yeah it's fascinating I totally agree with you like from a pharmaceutical industry perspective like drug delivery uh, it is a whole new field and I think well maybe not so new but it but it is separate from drug discovery and I think some of the pharmaceutical companies think about okay we've got a new drug we have to think about how we're going to deliver it I, I mean the easiest thing is oral and that's what everybody wants to do but when you're trying to get to the brain, it's really difficult. Oral, most drugs won't cross the blood-brain barrier. Most drugs won't pass. I mean, the great thing is our brains are protected from sort of everyday toxins. The challenge is when you're trying to get something toxic or something therapeutic into the brain, uh, it, it just becomes a huge barrier to do that. Does the term bioavailability apply to the brain? So how much is how much actually reaches the brain? Yeah, absolutely. And so even with molecules that cross into the brain, so for example, uh, cyclosporin, which is a very common immunosuppressant, will cross into the brain. And one of my collaborators, Cindy Moore, said, has shown that cyclosporin can stimulate uh, the endogenous stem cells, the resonant stem cells in the brain. Um, and and so that's great. And so if you take it systemically, so either intravenous or, or orally, it will get into your brain. We've done studies comparing local delivery. So what we did is we kind of made, think of it as a Band-Aid for the brain or a patch. So we can inject the cyclosporin directly onto the brain. Um, and thereby the cyclosporin will diffuse directly into the brain tissue. So it kind of go around that blood-brain barrier. Uh, so we did a head-to-head -head comparison in an animal model of, of stroke with cyclosporin, delivering it systemically, so outside of the brain versus in our, in our patch. Um, and, and we found that not only do you get much more into the brain tissue, as you might expect, you get much less into all your other organs as well when you deliver it directly to the brain. And that's really important for what people call systemic toxicity. Um, so while that's, so that demonstrates the importance of local delivery, getting more to where you need it. You don't, we used, I think, a thousand times less and got more where we needed it to be. 
and we didn't cause all this toxicity to other organs. You know, and that's that's really problematic in in applications of cancer, for example, where you know there's really limits in terms of how much drug some a cancer patient can take because it's going to kill you. It's going to give you a heart attack before it kills the cancer, right? So. Um, all that to say is that the, the blood-brain barrier is a big barrier, even for molecules that we consider can cross into the brain. Um, and our little patch is, is really a polymer. It's an injectable um, biomaterial, a hydrogel, just like jello, a water-swollen material. But we can inject it through a really teeny tiny needle right on top of the brain without causing any damage to the brain. Hi everyone, this is Melissa. And this is Alex. And this is our first segment of Ask a Student for the Raw Data podcast. Um, so on this episode of the podcast, Richie and Jabir had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Molly Shoykit. And sort of keeping with the theme of the podcast, we decided to sit down with one of her students, Nick Mitrusis. Mitrusis, yeah. Nick Mitrusis, who's a PhD student in her lab and is working on a project that's sort of a collaboration between Molly and Dr. Derek Vanderkoy. So thank you, Nick, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Melissa, for that lovely introduction. So the focus of this podcast this month is science engagement, and it's really about connecting potential students with supervisors and getting students interested in what their peers are studying. So maybe we can start the conversation with talking a bit about how you found Molly. Mm-hmm. So I was in the U.S. Uh, I'm originally Greek, so I did my undergrad in Greece. Uh, then I went to the U.S. to do my thesis, my research thesis, which is normally the last part of our undergrad. I stayed there for a year and a half. I was working in uh, immunology, tumor immunology, and I knew that I wanted to do something different. I could have stayed there for a PhD, but I liked the idea of combining um, engineering, chemistry, and biology, because I always thought that by combining different disciplines, you can probably achieve things that a single discipline cannot you know offer mm-hmm. um, so I looked at what was out there which were the most famous people doing bioengineering had published uh, great papers and you know mm-hmm. made a lot of significant work in the field and that's how I found Molly it was very difficult to get into her lab obviously especially mm-hmm. being an international student right. because our tuition is higher so right, you know, it's right. always much more competitive uh, I emailed her I contacted her in multiple ways I called her and uh, yeah eventually I got an interview and got into her lab <laughs> Yeah. You cracked in. You cracked yeah, the I cracked code. In. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what exactly was your undergrad in? Like how did did you study engineering or chemistry or polymer science before starting? Uh, Is that a prerequisite for your lab? So it's not officially a prerequisite. In reality, most people in the lab are engineers. They're chemical engineers or chemists. There's very few biologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, biologists. I'm a biologist. I'm a mole- I studied molecular biology and genetics in Greece, mm-hmm. and I had no background whatsoever in engineering or chemistry. And that was one of the points that Molly brought up during our interview. She said that, you know, I'm not sure how you're going to manage in the lab because there's a certain amount of, a certain amount of chemistry and engineering that you need to be able to understand mm-hmm. in order to succeed. But mm-hmm. I told her, you know, I like the challenge. I like the idea of learning new aspects, I guess, of science, and yeah, that's how it worked out. Wow. And you've been here for four years This now? is my sixth year now, oh so I've been God. here for five years. And yeah. how has that I'm worked out? My sixth year. It worked out really well, I think. Yeah. So my project ended up being more biological, I guess, than the average project in the lab, but mm-hmm. I still do some engineering, mm-hmm. and I still get exposed to a lot of it, a lot of chemistry and a lot of chemical engineering, uh, you know, drug release and stuff like that that, would, that I wouldn't have known mm-hmm. if I had gone to a different lab, to a more, you know, old school biology lab. Mm-hmm. And I've been very satisfied by that. And I feel how- like I've really broadened my perspective of yeah, you know, different absolutely. fields. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I feel like part of 
being a student and kind of getting outside of your comfort zone is putting yourself in a situation that you might not necessarily be ready for and just taking on that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds that you found like a nice bridge between what you did in your undergrad and what you're doing now that you, you know, you still have a biological focus in, in your thesis right now, but you've yeah. brought on all these new extra things that, you know, have brought your education and development to a whole new level and yeah, what you can yeah, contribute to science too. So that's, that's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what we strive for, right? In grad school, mm -hmm, doing yeah, research absolutely. to learn more. Yeah. I guess it ended up working out well. It wasn't, I, I think things kind of took their own way. I think it, mm -hmm. it, it's in a way natural that you'll end up doing things that are closer to what you've studied. Even when I joined a lab that was doing a lot of chemistry and engineering, my ideas and the way I was thinking was uh, similar to a biologist's mm -hmm. point of view. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how I ended up doing a more biological project. You know, obviously being exposed to different fields does enrich your knowledge. And of course. Well, I'm sure, but I'm sure okay. you're, that biological background is a great addition to the lab too yeah, as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Or, I hope they, they no. think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. This guy who comes in <laughs> thinks he's a biologist. Talks about exactly. cells. Yeah. <laughs> cells and genes. Cells and genes. Yeah. So you, you mentioned drug delivery a few seconds ago. Um, and so a lot of the work that Molly does is preclinical, right? Yeah. yeah. So how do you anticipate these technologies being used in the real world setting in maybe like five to ten years? So I know often when we talk about um, these types of things, you know, I think we have these like very long term goals where, you know, we'll say like maybe one day we'll be able to regenerate limbs or, or, or eyes and stuff like that. And th those sound wonderful, but I, in a more maybe tangible way, maybe stuff that we may, might benefit from by the time that we're seniors ourselves. What, where do you see this stuff going? Yeah. So I I think the big problem with any new technology and uh, you know approach, I guess, into the medical field is that it takes a really long time mm -hmm. for a discovery to go from bench to bedside just because of the regulations of and the money that you need to invest. So each single drug that gets approved, mm -hmm. if I remember my, my numbers correctly, it costs more than a billion dollars. So that yeah. makes it really difficult right, for, yeah. uh, for a certain product to make it to the clinic. Um, that being said, Many of the things that we work in in the lab, many of the materials that we use are clinically approved. Mm -hmm. So it would be easier, I think, for them to find a way towards the clinic. And I think there's a lot of potential for regenerative medicine to you know, do bring about change in uh, the way treatments are being done to patients. So I think that maybe in 15 to 20 years, a lot of the things we're doing in the lab may have found their way to the clinic. Now we're back to our podcast with Dr. Molly Schweikert. Speaking of collaborations, you mentioned the work you've done with Dr. Morshead. But you've also worked very closely with Dr. Derek Vanderkoy and Dr. Charles Tatter. Could you tell us about those experiences too? Right. So I, sometimes I think collaboration is my middle name. I love <laughs> collaborating with people, and uh, and I need to. So it's good that I like it. And uh, so with Charles Tatter, for example, when I the first grant proposal I wrote was based on spinal cord injury. You know, how can we use polymer science to promote nerve repair in the spinal cord? And Charles Tatter is, is a giant in, in that area, a neurosurgeon scientist. And so we went to talk with him and Michael Failings, you know, 20 so years ago now. And at that point, we really didn't have that much to offer, just ideas. But it was those ideas that we discussed with them and developed with them that helped us figure out, okay, remember I said earlier, like, if we know what we need to create, we can create it. So by working closely, with Charles and, and his team of um, you know, MD-PhD students, grad students, fellows, 
um, we were able to come up with some strategies and then test them. So he brings not only the patient knowledge, but also the, you know, the animal models in terms of how we can test those. Of course, we have to test them before we go to patients. And the same with Derek Vandercourt. I think, um, actually, Derek and I started to collaborate really closely on, on applications in blindness uh, when we had an MD-PhD student who was trying to figure out whose lab to work in. It's like, well, I could work in Molly's lab or Derek's lab. And Derek and I said, well, why don't you just work in both of our labs and we'll come up with a collaborative project. And so... Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it was really, really great. And I have to tell you, the first study we did was... So Derek has discovered uh, the retinal stem cells in the eye, in the human eye and the mouse eye. And so the first study we did is we took his retinal stem cells and we transplanted them into a mouse eye just alone, the way we normally do things in saline, uh, just a salt solution, or um, in our, our hydrogel, our injectable hydrogel. And I was so nervous because I knew if this study bombed, like if we didn't show anything good, that was it for the collaboration. <laughs> you know, like you're a nice person, but there's no value in this. Right. But in that first study, it was incredible because um, we saw greater survival, and the hydrogel created just a lovely distribution of cells once they were injected, versus the traditional method, all the cells clumped up, um, and they aggregated, so they weren't integrating, they weren't becoming part of the tissue. Uh, so that first study was, was incredible, and then that set the stage, and, and now we, we still collaborate very closely with Derek, and now with uh, Valerie Wallace, and it's, it's what's great is that more and more people want to collaborate with us because they see that we've brought value to other cells and, uh, and maybe we can bring value there as well. So that's been great. Many scientists we talked to say that maybe 20 or so years ago, the methods hadn't really caught up with the theory. And so a lot of things were theory-based. We had a lot of questions, but we didn't really know how we were going to go about answering them as far as the, the methods, the experiments. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing kind of the opposite, where the methods are far outstripping the questions. And we're able to do things very easily, but now maybe we're not sure. We're getting confused as to what the, what the correct question to ask is. Do you find the same is true in your field, or are there still a lot of methodological challenges too? accomplishing your research? Well, I think what our lab does is I kind of think of us as enabling technologies, so kind of bringing some of the tools of the trade so we can ask some of those big questions. So for sure, there's still really big questions that we face. Um, and one of the big challenges is then how do we actually answer those questions? And do we have the tools to answer them? So, you know, for example, in stem cell transplantation, we We've got the stem cells, um, but the challenge is, is how do we get them to survive? How do we get them to integrate? We have a new collaboration, actually, with Gordon Keller's lab, uh, which is all around liver tissue engineering. Can we actually engineer liver in the dish, study it, and then can we also use that for transplantation? So again, it's fantastic collaborating with him because he's got all the cells. You know, there's still questions that he's answering, but you have a little bit of the pieces of the puzzle you need. And what we're trying to do is now think about, okay, well, how do we put those pieces of the puzzle together so they make sense? Um, sometimes the cells will self-organize, but usually you have to give them some of those signals, some of those cues to get them to organize. It's almost like, you know, I guess, you know, thinking of a magician putting a puzzle together with, you know, waving their magic wand. Um, so there's no magic, but, but what are 
like what is that wand that we have to provide that will get those cells, those pieces of the puzzle to, to organize in the right way. So that's, that's super exciting, you know, to bring, and, and, and I have to tell you though, we can only collaborate with people like Gordon or Derek or Cindy because we've been working for 20 years trying to develop these tools. The challenge I think sometimes is, you know, the stem cell biologist will say, hey, we need something. And we're like, great, I'll put a PhD student on that and we'll have something for you in five years. You know, right. that's a challenge. So really it has to be a collaboration and there has to be an understanding that we don't have all the cells yet, you don't have all the materials yet. Let's come together, figure out what we need. And we're gonna have to, it, it is iterative. You know, we always have a hypothesis. We always think what we're gonna do is gonna work. But it's research, right? And anybody in research knows that it's not always gonna work. So your project stemmed from this project that was originally the collaboration between Molly and Derek. Yes. And so there was a student in your lab who was delivering retinal stem cells to the eye. And how did your project come out of that? Uh -huh. So so what uh, Brian was doing, what the previous student was doing, uh, and what many other people do in the field, is that they'll, they'll try to transplant uh, photoreceptors or RPE into the eye. Now, the, the photoreceptors are the cells that detect light, right? And they die in uh, certain diseases that lead to blindness. And the other cell type that we're interested in is called RPE. I mentioned it before. That stands for retinal pigmented epithelium. So that cell type is, uh, it provides support to the photoreceptors. And normally what happens in a disease that's very common, which is called age-related macular degeneration, and it affects more than a million people in Canada, is that the RPE dies first. Mm -hmm. And because of the interdependent relationship that the RPE has with the photoreceptors, the photoreceptors die as well. Mm -hmm. So we know from you know, a lot of scientific studies that in order for a person or an animal to have proper vision, uh, they need to have both RPE and photoreceptors that are functional. Uh, now, people obviously, you, you have to take to take them the approach one step at a time, right? You you start with transplanting one cell, and eventually you build it up from there. So people so far have been transplanting only photoreceptors or only RPE, while in reality, for most patients, in order for a transplantation approach to work, you'd need them to have functional RPE and photoreceptors. So what we're trying to do now is do a co-transplantation of both RPE and photoreceptors. So yeah, that's how my project's different. So Brian was transplanting photoreceptors, and I'm transplanting photoreceptors and RPE. Yeah, and, and so the RPE I derived from uh, human embryonic stem cells. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So not only do you have to do the cell biology, like you have to plate the cells, you have to help them survive in vitro. Mm -hmm. You then have to differentiate them after. Yes. And yes. then put them in this hydrogel, or is, does the whole process? Yeah. So I mix them in the hydrogel before injection, and then I inject them. Yeah. Into the mouse. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. The photoreceptors, the RPE, and the, yeah, and, and the hydrogel. Just to backtrack a little bit, so as someone who comes from more of a clinical research background, what is a hydrogel exactly? How does that so work? So you can imagine it as a jello mm -hmm. in terms of consistency. Um, it's, it's a material that's made by sugars, and okay. it's water swollen, so the, the sugars absorb water. So it's very squishy and you know soft, and the way you use it for drug delivery is you would you know put it somewhere in the body mm -hmm. so that it localizes the delivery. It functions as a drug depot from where the drugs come so out. So you of. put it on the body. Uh, so you might put I mean, it like on you your would, shoulder, for instance, or you would inject. I guess it. you could use it that way. Yeah, okay. the, the materials we use in the lab they would be injectable. Injected. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you would inject it inside the body. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then the the drug is in the hydrogel. The drug is in the hydrogel. Okay. Exactly, and it gets released. And mm. for cells, you do the exact same thing. You just 
mix the cells in. Okay. And usually the hydrogels will contain some material that cells like to respond to, okay. so some material that's naturally found in their environment. Oh, the extracellular sneaky. matrix. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So that helps with cell survival because a big issue when you're transplanting cells in the brain or in the eye or you know wherever mm -hmm. else in the body is that most cells will die after transplantation and they won't integrate. So by using materials, um, the cells sort of feel that they're attaching to something that's not written, that, that's naturally found in their environment mm -hmm. and they tend to survive better. Do you have um, any goals um, of like maybe starting your own lab or like how, how what do you see for yourself? Um, yeah. yeah, I do eventually want to start my own lab. Mm -hmm. The problem is that it's, you know, it's really competitive, it's really of difficult course. and oftentimes it's dependent on things that are beyond your own hard work, I think, because yes. sometimes you just have to get lucky mm -hmm. to happen to be working on a project that produces good and you know, perhaps revolutionary data so mm -hmm. that you can get a big paper, Absolutely. but then you can get a lab. So unfortunately, that's kind of the way it works. I okay. would, I'll definitely give it a shot. Like I'll do a postdoc after and mm -hmm. I'll see where it goes from there. Yeah. But this is what I want to do. I want to have my own lab. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Super I think it's exciting. the best job in the world. If you, I think if you're cut for this, like if you like science, it's yeah. the best job in the world. No, absolutely. You do what you enjoy all day. It's well, it's nice. It yeah, you like seem super job, motivated yeah. by it. I feel it's 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 uh, really nice to see you talking about your project because you seem very intrinsically motivated by it. It's not just you know, you know this is part of my degree. Like you, it seems like you yeah you really enjoy what you do, which is great. Yeah, great I do. To I see. do enjoy. It. I have enjoyed it so far. Yeah, but I have enjoyed it a lot. As sort of a final sign-off, do you have any advice for other grad students at U of T? Run away. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I would say in my experience, uh, U of T is probably one of the best places in the world to do research. Uh, I think there's a lot of funding for research here. There's a lot of great minds. And uh, the one thing I noticed here compared to where I was before in the States of course, that could just be an individual case, right? But I was at UPenn in the States, just to mention. Um, I found that people tend to collaborate much more here compared to what I saw back there. There, there was a lot of competition between labs. Here, there's a lot of collaboration. So yeah, I guess the generic advice would be to try to get out of your comfort zone. And in, in the end, that's very rewarding because you may learn things that you never imagined. Mm -hmm. And you also gain ideas so, so by communicating with people that do completely different things from what you do, you can get ideas that you would have never thought of by yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. You can achieve greater things. Thank you so much. You talked about your active collaborations, but you also bring together scientists to engage the public. So why is science engagement such a big deal for you? So, um, so I'm senior advisor to Merrick Gertler, the president of U of T on science and engineering engagement. And first of all, I think it's fantastic that the president of U of T has somebody who's, who's focused on this area. Uh, there's an enormous amount of engagement. You guys are doing engagement at U of T, and so um, I don't pretend to be involved in all of it or, or even to direct even a small port, part of it. Um, but what I am really passionate about engaging the public in what we do. I think it's incredibly important for uh, the public to know what research is and why it's important. I think it's incredibly important to our future. It's, it's defining our future. And um, what we have to do then is explain what, what it is and, and why it's important. And what I've been doing with um, this role is, one is around research to reality, which is really a national social media campaign uh, using you know, sort of bite-sized, Snack, that snack culture that I think you guys understand as well of trying to engage people in, in research. 
and, and, and its importance. And, uh, and then also we host events at the University of Toronto to bring the public to U of T or bring U of T to the public. So where would you point someone entering the field of polymer science and engineering? And what do you think are the most exciting questions in your field right now? Well, of course, they should be excited about the work we're doing. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, I think it's really exciting to be working at the interface of different fields. So whether that's with medicine, which is what we're doing, or the environment, uh, which some of my other or, or, or energy, I think there's really exciting questions in each of those areas. So, you know, in energy, for example, solar pa panels. How do we get more efficient solar panels? Um, so one of my colleagues, uh, Tim Bender, Dwight Sefros, Ted Sargent, a lot of people at U of T are working on different angles of that in the context of material science, polymer science, and, and energy. Similarly with the environment, we can think about clean up, you know, obviously, Polymers are a big part of what we do, but how do we make, you know, green polymers? How do we make them in a way that uses that is more more efficient processes? How do we make them that they degrade into non-toxic substance? And then, of course, in medicine, they have a huge. There's a huge opportunity in regenerative medicine, of course, which is what we do, but also, um, you know, in prosthetics and and devices, um, the way the material interacts with the body impacts you know, the success of that device. So you can have the best electrical circuits, um, but if, it, if that material corrodes, if it's a metal, or, or if it degrades or it causes toxicity, it's ultimately going to fail. Any thoughts on 3D printing, uh, how it relates to your field? Yeah, so 3D printing is a very exciting area. We're just starting a collaboration with Axel Gunter on 3D printing related to our liver tissue engineering project. And... Um, you know, we focused on growing cells, tissues in three dimensions in culture um, using chemical signaling pathways. So trying to create, uh, again, these water-swollen materials, hydrogels, as a way to grow cells in 3D and um, guide their growth, ask some really interesting questions uh, in cancer biology by manipulating the environment, creating biomimetic environments in which to grow cells for perhaps more predictive drug screening in cancer, but that's also applied to other tissues. So we're very interested in 3D and growing cells and tissues in 3D. And bioprinting is, is a cool and exciting area uh, that, that we can take advantage of and work with you know, some of the experts in that area, taking advantage of some of our material science and, and their, their tools. How do you identify passionate and talented students who maybe don't have any research experience or not much? What do you look for when you're recruiting? I look for exactly that. I look for people who are smart and people who are engaged and interested. I figure if you have only one of those, if you're really smart but you don't care, not going to do anything, anybody in research will tell you there are so many dead ends that you face and you have to have that perseverance mm -hmm. to try again. And... Um, and then also if you're really engaged, but unfortunately not that smart, again, you're not going to be successful because, you know, if, if you try but you don't know how to try, that's not going to work. I, I do encourage uh, students, undergraduate students, to get research experience during their undergraduate years because, first of all, I'll tell them if they're interested, you know, it helps them figure out if they want to do research. And then it helps, you know, people like me who are interviewing them for graduate school, although I ha also always have undergraduates in my lab. I think we have five or six this year, like it's crazy. Um, but, um, you know, it, it helps me get a sense of 
how they're going to be in research, you know. So, so that you know, it's important for the student. It's also important for the person hiring them. I think that brings us to the end. Is there any place where, or is there anything that you want to maybe point to, say, Research to Reality or any other initiatives that you're involved in that any interested parties might be able to find online? Yeah, absolutely. So Research to Reality with the number two uh, is, is a great place for people who just want to learn more about research. And it's broad, right? It's, of course, medicine, engineering, science, but it's also social science, law, policy, so pretty uh, diverse range of research topics that we cover. And it doesn't take much time. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook. That's great. So just Google your name, really, then they'll <laughs> yeah. find you. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> if they spell it correctly. <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, thank thanks, you, guys. This us. was awesome. Raw Data is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawdataims.com and also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Do you have any advice for other grad students at U of T? Run away. <laughs>